You're listening to a Royal Children's Hospital Education Hub podcast. Hi, my name's Tyler Hindman. I'm part of the nursing education team in the emergency department, and I'm also working as an education fellow, part of the Education Hub. I'm here with Dr. Nadine Sharples, a paediatric emergency physician and general paediatrician at the Royal Children's Hospital here in Melbourne. In addition to working as an ED consultant, Nadine is Director of Emergency Training and is actively involved in teaching our new doctors. Today, we'll be gaining Nadine's insights discussing the key priorities to managing seizures in paediatric emergency setting. Hi, Nadine. Hi, Tyler. Thank you so much for asking me along today. Great to have you here. I'm going to jump right into it. So working as an emergency physician in a busy ED, your exposure to seizures would be quite high. How do you approach a seizing patient? What's going through your mind? That's a really great question. And it's a situation that we we deal with almost on a daily basis. I think the most important thing with seizures is to get a little bit of history in the first instance. So is this a child who has a known seizure disorder? And then what medications are they on? What are the possible causes? Now, all of those things are are happening in your history taking, but at the same time, you're actively managing the patient who is seizing in front of you. And we use our usual ABC approach. Obviously, many of you would be familiar with that, uh, approaching the patient's airway, breathing and circulation in a standard format. Yeah, and that's the beauty of the um, emergency model. I guess you're cutting out all that noise, dealing with the priority at hand, and then uh, in the background, making sure initially, I guess, you have air going in and out, blood going around and around, then you can think about all the other things that it could be. That's right. We are simple people. We like to keep it simple. Absolutely. Well, can you elaborate uh, what's going on in the brain when a seizure is occurring? So the se- a seizure itself is a is hyperexcitation of the the neurons or the the nerve cells and they're going at a million miles an hour. The neurons may be firing in a generalized way, so all of them together or in a focal way, so only a small part of the brain is being involved in that situation. In those situations, it's very difficult for the neurons to turn themselves off and that's where we come in and that's where we need to intervene. Okay. If a patient has a seizure, does that mean that they have epilepsy? Just like one seizure, does that mean? That is a question I get asked so many times. And of course, it's possibly one of the most frightening things for a parent to see. Seizures can be caused by so many different things. One seizure does not mean that this child has epilepsy. And that's our job as emergency physicians and doctors to go ahead and start trying to find out what the cause of the seizure is. So there are, there are many different causes. Some of those things are hypoglycemia, which is probably one of the more common ones. Um, one of the other causes is infections, and these can cause what we know, we know to be febrile convulsions. So any kind of virus or febrile illness, which decreases the seizure threshold, which is very common in in young children, but certainly does not mean that this child has epilepsy. Only a very small proportion of those children go on to have epilepsy. It's in the order of about 3%. Okay, that's good to know Um, and really reassuring for families, I'm sure. 
you've obviously mentioned a couple of those triggers. I'm glad that you mentioned the hypoglycemia. That's one of the easiest things that we probably can rule out, isn't That's it? That's exactly yeah. right. And certainly if uh, a child is continuing to seize and, and the um, airway team are supporting the airway, our circulation team can be getting IV access or taking a quick finger prick and uh, getting a, a BGL very quickly. And that allows us to... Uh, solve the problem and correct the problem very quickly. Excellent. So does it change your approach when you're managing a patient that has no history of seizures? It makes us look for other causes. So if it was a teenage child who had never had a seizure in their past history, we'd be wondering about trauma. We'd be wondering about intracranial bleeds. We'd also be wondering about toxins and drug ingestions that would be a, a cause for a first seizure in an older child. Some of the other things that can cause seizures would be an intracranial bleed, a stroke, or unfortunately, space-occupying lesion like a brain tumour. That can be a, a rare presentation. Okay, that's great to clear up. You did mention uh, fever as well that can trigger seizures. Can you elaborate more on that around when it's a febrile convulsion and maybe when it's not? Yeah, that's um, a great question and sometimes it's really tricky for us to know as well. But febrile convulsions usually occur in children between one and six years of age. It's not the fever itself that causes the convulsion, but actually it's the rate of rise of the temperature. So how quickly that temperature rises and that can cause the, the neurons to become hyperexcited in that situation. Children who are febrile, who have febrile convulsions they're usually generalized meaning the entire body is involved they don't tend to have any other sort of focal features so why that we mean like a twitching of one arm one leg they're usually not prolonged but it can happen it's it's rare but they're usually brief and usually a, a one-off in the setting of the illness itself. If we have a child who is febrile, who has other features, so whether they have a rash, which is non-blanching, or they have focal features to suggest a intracranial infection, such as meningitis, that's that's the tricky bit. And often you don't know, especially if you do have a first presentation of a young child who's never had febrile convulsions before, that's when we start thinking about covering all eventualities. And some of those children with febrile convulsions who go on to have a diagnosis of, of that do end up getting treated with antibiotics to cover them for the worst case scenario. Okay. Also, subtle seizures, neonates might just throwing them out there um, what are some signs that you can see whether or not it's like normal myoclonic jerks or something like that in a neonatal population or how do you know if it's a seizure activity what kind of things do you look for another great question so in neonates usually if they're having myoclonic jerks they're often going off to sleep so they're called sleep myoclonus so often we see little babies who are brought in by their parents and they're worried that this might be a seizure activity so sometimes those jerks occur as we're falling into sleep and if you get that history it can be very very reassuring the other things that we'll look for in the in neonates would be a bulging fontanelle so if there are signs of raised pressure around the brain that can help us determine if that that's actually a um true seizure again movements of the eyes so nystagmus or or eye deviation to one side is certainly something that we would look for in in those situations but 
when if the the baby is actively seizing at the time one of the the things that we will try and do is pop our hand on on the limb and see if that stops the seizure activity if it doesn't it's more likely to be a central cause so a seizure for that activity excellent thank you and we've got a couple of seizures that we classify absent and generalized tonic clonic mm. what does a absent seizure look like versus tonic clonics so an absent seizure can be the briefest kind of seizure and sometimes it's all in the history we don't tend to see absent seizures so much in the emergency department. It's often a, the history that the child may be zoning out at school or they're having periods where the parents are trying to get their attention and they're unable to get them to attend to them. Sometimes parents think that they're just being a little mm. bit difficult, but yeah. actually, no, the children are really not with um, or not conscious yes. and responding. Yeah, and then the generalized tonic clonic, that's the classic seizure. That's our classic see. seizure, and, and that's what we generally see with a febrile convulsion. It's the increased tone of the limbs associated with the jerking component of, of the limbs. So that's your myoclonic component. So, And when we talk about that focal versus generalized, that's really what we mean is that if the entire body is involved, that is a generalized seizure. Whereas if it's focal, it can just be one arm or one leg or even eye deviation. Excellent. The term status is thrown around and sometimes it can be a soundbite and people might not know exactly what that means. Can you just clarify what status means? I, I can actually because I wanted to get this definition correct for everybody and if we think about convulsive status epilepticus, it was defined by the International League Against Epilepsy and there are three dot points to it. So it's unresponsive with ongoing abnormal movements or increased tone for longer than five minutes or it can be two or more recurrent seizure episodes with no recovery of consciousness in between, or three or more convulsions within the hour and the child is currently convulsing. So, you know, the classical generalized tonic-clonic seizure going for more than five minutes, um, that's when we start to really think about that in the emergency setting. But some families, they will come in with a history of the child having had a number of seizures within the hour and or there's no recovery between the seizures and that's and that's where we also need to intervene. Excellent. And that's that sort of clustering yeah, of seizures, that's right. I guess we call that's it. That's right. And that postictal phase, um, what does that mean? So the postictal phase is once the seizure has terminated and the child may be very drowsy, they might want to sleep. Sometimes they can even have areas of their body, like an arm or a leg that doesn't move as well post-seizure. Post and it, it can last for a couple of minutes, even up to an hour for, for that period to really resolve and the child come back to their normal baseline. I guess the way I think about it is that it takes an enormous amount of energy for the brain to have a seizure. And so it's quite tired yes. and it needs a bit of a rest afterwards. Yeah, and it's sort of resetting itself, I mm. guess. So just to recap some sort of management as you walk in, it's airway protection first above all else and then uh, making sure that the patient is safe. Mm. When do we need to intervene with medications? That's a really great question. And the wonderful thing about emergency medicine is that we have a number of algorithms that we can use to help guide us. Often children who are actively seizing are being brought in by the ambulance service. And so getting a history of whether they have administered 
any benzodiazepines, which is usually our first line of management, that normally occurs after five minutes when the, the seizure's been going for that long, which if you ask many parents, that's a very long time for the child to be seizing. So a seizure longer than five minutes will be the time that you jump in with your first treatment, which is a benzodiazepine. In our hospital, we use midazolam at 0.15 milligram per kilogram. If that doesn't terminate the seizure, then we can repeat that dose. Excellent. And and the route we can easily give is, is intramuscular. And in that time, you can get a line and then it can be given uh, intravenously. That's uh, good. Yeah, after. that's absolutely correct. And um, so children with known seizures disorders may be discharged from the emergency department or, or from their neurology outpatient appointment with uh, what we call rescue midazolam, which may be given at home by their parents if the seizure goes for more than five minutes. And that requires training for the, the family as it can be given both intranasal and also buccal, so into the oral mucosa to terminate the seizure. Yeah, and I also find that um, sometimes parents will see us drawing up these uh, drugs and maybe giving it slightly different. I think a good reassurance to the families is that, you know, what you're doing is no better or worse than what we're doing. Uh, we just prefer not to send you home with glass ampules and needles. It's just That's so true. That's so true. No, it's great. Um, the ampules that they are sent home with are certainly safe and easy to dispose of, which is very good news for families. Absolutely. I guess, you know, the benzos are really useful, but what are the risks that come with them? The the biggest risk with the benzodiazepine is the airway will be compromised. So it may turn off the seizure, but it also has the risk that it will mean that your rate of breathing decreases or your impetus to breathe is, is no longer there. And often we'll have to support the airway in that situation. Yeah, absolutely. Respiratory depression and, yeah, CNS. <laughs> potentially so what if the patient has had minimal response to those benzos what kind of second line uh, medications do we use well it's really great that you um, have asked that question because there were two big trials that have recently occurred both here in Australia and in the UK our hospital is has been fortunate to be part of the group that recruited patients for what was known as the concept trial so this study looked at which second line agent, whether that was phenytoin or levtriacetam, also known as Keppra, was superior to one another. What the trial found was that neither of those agents is better than the other. And the most important thing for the use of a second line agent to try and terminate the seizure is whether the child is on phenytoin or phenobarbitone then you would automatically go for Keppra. Or if the child is already on Keppra at home, then you would choose phenytoin in that situation. The other thing that it might come down to is, and, and knowing that there is no difference in the actual numbers of superiority when, it, when you're looking at superiority, the Keppra can be given over five minutes, whereas the phenytoin needs to be infused over 20 minutes. So looking at at those kind of things, you might want a quicker outcome or you as a physician might want to know if you're going to have a quicker response. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess the recovery time too, because phenytoin is that really narrow therapeutic window. You only have to give a little bit of it for its desired effects to be closely linked to its adverse effects. That's so exactly right. Massive CNS depression, respiratory depression with it. 
Which is fine because it cuts the grid of yeah. all that uh, excitability in the brain. Yeah, that's right. But again... <laughs> it works a little too well sometimes. Some, that's exactly right. And sometimes that use of that drug may push you into intubating the patient. So yeah. when we were talking about supporting the airway, you may need to then intubate the patient and then source a intensive care bed for the child if that does decrease your airway at that point. Excellent. And you pretty much answered the next question, you know, at what point are we intubating? So you've, you've mentioned the fact that we're, we need to secure airway, whether it is from the medications that we are giving. What other reasons do you want to get them tube? That's um, a really great question. And it's one of the biggest things as emergency physicians we need to balance. Because sometimes the seizures, if you can support them with a bag and mask, you might be able to get them through that particular seizure without the need for it for a tube because that comes with its own risk however if the child does have significant airway depression from the medications or indeed the seizure itself the co2 or the carbon dioxide can build up and so when you're looking at a blood gas um, you might notice that there is a significantly high carbon dioxide and that child is never going to blow that off themselves and so that will make us think about popping the child on the ventilator. Some of the other things that might make you consider intubation is a history of prolonged seizures or a history of status epilepticus. And sometimes children who have quite intractable seizures need anaesthetic agents to help turn those seizures off. So that's when we've failed our second line agents. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess also um, the patients that may not have a history of seizures and you want to make sure you're ruling out that bleed or that's correct so so when we need to image the child's head and you know we're seeing we may need to do that for a, a number of reasons so whether you're looking for a bleed whether you're looking for a stroke whether you think that this is going to be an ongoing issue for for a while it's not going to turn around very quickly excellent do you have any sort of final key messages that you'd like to sort of summarise? So somebody that might not be used to working with children or seizures or have a critical care background, mm. um, any sort of points that you'd like to sort of... I think the most important thing is to keep calm because that way you're going to be able to manage the situation a whole, a whole heap better. The ABC approach, so going back to basics, you don't need to be able to intubate a child to manage a child's airway. So bag valve mask or oxygen and a jaw thrust in the situation where the child is not breathing as fully as they might otherwise be. But the simple things that we can do well is look for reversible causes. And the easiest one, as we've mentioned, is hypoglycemia. So looking for that and other reversible causes. So Again, an electrolyte and a calcium magnesium phosphate are also useful in the setting um, where you've not got a a full history Um, and a venous blood gas or a capillary blood gas can be very useful in that situation. I think knowing two drugs is also um, very handy and knowing those doses, writing them down, having them on on your practice or your 
emergency department's resus area. Midazolam is, is the one that we use. Be familiar with that and know the dose that is 0.15 milligram per kilogram and may be given in both IV, IM, intranasal or uh, buccal. For the buccal and the intranasal, that's a 0.3 milligram per kilogram dose. But I think most departments would have phenytoin. You may not have Keppra, but knowing that that is as effective in terminating the seizures is, is great knowledge to have as well. Thank you so much for your time and expertise. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Tyler. I really appreciate you having me. Excellent. Thanks for listening. Please view the description section below for more information on this topic. The Education Hub is a collaboration between the Royal Children's Hospital and the University of Melbourne Department of Paediatrics and funded by the RCH Foundation.